on speed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee, as well as other committees, have a lot of great content coming out, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. And for anyone that's tuning in for the first time that is also not familiar with who the HPA is, they are a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. But if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who the HPA is or who I am for that matter, you know, I try not to force everyone that's a subscriber to listen to a long-winded, repetitive intro on each of our episodes. So you can find that full-length intro on episode one of this podcast series. So some good news and some bad news for all my listeners that have been actively listening. If you're wondering why I haven't released an episode in the last two weeks, the good news is my family has just recently expanded a week ago and I now have a daughter. However, with this giant change in my life, I don't think I'll be able to maintain pumping out an episode a week like I had before. However, they will keep coming, not to worry, just not quite as frequently as before. The good news is, now I'm back in a studio, which is awesome, with no baby crying in the background. (laughs) So cheers to no more noise reductions on these recordings. Alright, let's get to it. So we're here today to talk about previs. How it's used, how it affects both production and post, as well as the state of virtual production in a post-COVID-19 world. For many people listening that have never worked on jobs with Previs and have never worked on a virtual production job, I think having the intro as to what exactly Previs is should really help ease us into the conversation of how virtual production may play a part in that post-COVID-19 film industry. So our guest here with us today is the founder of the company Technoprops and former VP of Visual Effects at Fox VFX Lab, Glenn Derry. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Sounding Jesse. Just uh, relaxing in my air-conditioned studio. It's it's nice to be back, even though there's I'm wearing a mask whenever I walk around the halls, and there's only one person per room right right now, and all the hallways have been turned into one ways and temperature checks, and it's a it's a new world. Are they doing that throughout the whole the whole studio? Uh, are you at Sim right now? Or yeah, exactly. So there's a lot oh, of wow. new things we had to put in place, and we got these. Uh, UV boxes for drives coming and going for certain types of drives and a lot of procedures put in place to get back up and running now that we've heard word that productions may actually spin back up pretty soon, hopefully at least. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard that as well. And, and I don't know what the rules are. You're up in uh, Vancouver, right? So Actually, I'm in Toronto. but You're in you, Toronto. Okay. Yeah, I oversee each of our offices, though, around all over so you know i'm kind of involved in la vancouver new york atlanta and toronto and whatever other remote place people want to shoot and hire us in yeah well i'm just i'm just interested in the differentials between what they're doing like in los angeles versus you know the toronto versus you know Mm -hmm. montreal all all of the places seem to be rolling up differently right now they are but we kept a lot of the processes similar as to what we're going to do yeah a lot of the enforced things that we're going to try to put in place. We'll see how it actually goes when, you know, are we really going to turn someone away that fails a temperature check at the door? <laughs> I don't like clients yeah. coming in for a session. We'll <laughs> that drive is not, that, that drive does not come in. Yeah. That's gotta be <laughs> interesting. Or you hit, yeah. or you, like you said, you hit it with UV light or, uh, or a lot, lot of Lysol before the thing hits your, hits your desk. Yeah. Exactly. Crazy. Yeah. Times. For sure. So for anyone that doesn't know who Glenn is, why don't I 
Um, let me see if I can get this right, Glenn. A few jobs that I thought I'd mention that were kind of cool that you worked on would be The Jungle Book, Avatar, Real Steel, The Aviator. And um, I actually met Glenn working on the feature film Warcraft. And this was a job that was using simulcam, whereby you had actors on set wearing trackball suits. And when you looked at any monitor, instead of seeing the actors, you saw CG characters overlaid on top of them, actually moving as the actors moved. And, and then you had a green screen or blue screen behind the actors that was comped out live as well with a CG background placed in that whenever you panned, tilted, or moved the airy camera, you actually had the background behind it panning and moving with it as well. So rather than watching actors and tracksuits in front of a green screen. It looked like a video game quality finished product and around 270 degrees of the stage you had all this technology and all this gear, nothing like I'd ever seen before. And to go full circle, Glenn seemed to be the mastermind behind making it all work cohesively and together. So all that to say, Glenn's a badass and I'm happy to have him on the show. Oh, well, well thank you, Jesse. And what you're describing is kind of like I consider to be like the, you know, the master class and how to pull this stuff off. I mean, it goes from smaller scale types of virtual productions where you're you're just sort of focusing on one element of it, be it previs, be it mocap. When you're talking about a movie like Warcraft or Avatar or Jungle Book, for that matter, that's sort of like trying to put everything together and mashing all of the techniques together at one time uh, and allowing people to visualize on set. I mean, what it really does is it allows creative participation in the storytelling aspects of this sort of CG environments by people who don't necessarily, you know, make their living by pushing mice around. I can, I can give a tool to a cameraman that allows him to work as a cameraman, but work in CG. And then when we take that stuff from sort of the front end, which we'll get into later, and take it out onto the live action set, we can we can then take those backgrounds and those environments and project them where the blue screen, where the green screen was in 3D space, because we know where the camera position is. And so uh, a lot of what I've done over the years is really integrate all of these various pieces to make them functional on a, on a production scale. When we started on Avatar, it was sort of like science experiment time. You know, we were just like literally figuring out how to do it, writing the code, building the hardware uh, that allowed us to do a lot of this stuff. Now much of it's become a little bit more ubiquitous. It's just, it's a little bit more out there, but still sort of at the at the high end of the spectrum. But as with anything with time, it's it's becoming cheaper, easier. It's, it's certainly more out there. And it's and it's the buzzword du jour in a, in a, in a COVID land right now. You know, virtual production is <laughs> going to save the day. But, um, you know, there, there are limitations, you know, and, and we can get into all that. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, there's obviously, like you said, a lot of facets to that. Why don't we start by getting into what previs is? I'm sure there's many people that work on mid-tier, lower-tier jobs or, quite frankly, TV. I don't know. I, I, I've often seen this on features, but not any of the TV shows I've worked on, But um, or people that work in different segments of our industry. They may not even know what this is. So with that said, do you want to give everyone a big picture overview of what exactly previs is, and then we can get into how you do it? Well, um, in, in a nutshell, Previs is taking the t same tools that back-end animation studios would use or back-end visual effects studios would use and making a pre-visualization, a, a lower resolution version of uh, 3D space, assets, characters, etc., etc., in order to tell a story in CG space ahead of actually doing it in live action. So... 
it's used in many ways. Uh, initially, when let's say I get a call to do a show, there may only be a script. There may not even be storyboards. There may not even be a script in some cases. You want to tonally come up with an idea of what the vision of a particular project is. And so we'll do something, you know, we'll do, they, they call it like pitch viz, but it's all really the same thing. It's a, it's a video game resolution version of what the ideas of the project are to come. Typically previs is used most heavily in feature work and like action sequences, things that are sort of difficult to wrap your head around. Like, how are we actually going to shoot that? scenes will get previs to do that. What we've done or what I've focused on the last several years is really taking previs to the point where we're trying to do story development and actual storytelling where we'll we'll do the, you know, the walk and talk scenes and the, you know, sitting around the table scenes even in previs just so we get an idea of the narrative in the context of the entire picture. So, in essence, it's a it's a low resolution version of the movie, a video yeah. game version of it. If you think of online offline it's really it's the offline version of what the online movie is that that is to come later. Interesting. Yeah, and it's that's really a really interesting angle of helping create the story because I had previously heard mainly this being used as a visual aid to like you said to something more complex, but in the scenario where it's helping drive the story, I got to assume that that really helps the studio feel good about what they're investing in. They get a feel for the pacing, the tone of what it's going to be and and really help going into production at that point. Yeah, I mean, that I think that's what really the evolution of it is. I mean, it used to be literally, you know, back when it was first kind of coming online and we're talking about, and really that, that shift happened when, you know, like let's say Maya or some of these 3D tools started becoming cheaper to use, you know, when it was, when it was million dollar, you know, SGI machines back in the day, you, you know, previous didn't really exist. Right. But then as you moved into, I'm going to call it the, the, the late nineties, early two thousands, it started becoming where individuals could like have a workstation and smaller companies could come up in these, and these like little storytelling outfits who maybe were do maybe would have been storyboard guys in a previous life started saying, Hey, we can use 3d applications to do this same kind of work a little better. And the nice thing is, is if you're doing it in 3d, you can take into account the physical realities of what's their perspective matches perspective. If I draw, you know, if I draw a car or, or something like it, it can be the actual size and scale of the actual thing to come. And that, that changes your ability. When you make a virtualized camera of a, you know, a 25 mil lens on an airy film back, it's going to look like that. You know exactly what that framing is going to be. So you can start making a lot more technical decisions about what's coming going to happen later, but also creative ones because the lens choices that you're making are actually accurate to what the physical lenses would be later, mm -hmm. as opposed to a storyboard that's really just a flat sort of quick drawing of, of you know, concept of, of piece. So it's it's an evolution from storyboard. And then what, what I've really enjoyed is sort of the evolution of, from what I'll call traditional previs, which is exactly that sort of a technical breakdown of, of an action sequence or something like that into a more story-driven, essentially cartoon version of the movie that can be used to tell the story, to help marketing, to help everybody that, that has to be around the picture get a really good idea of what the director's intent is before we're out there on the day shooting. And this can be done with a small team at much less expense than like, you know, actually physically shooting. That's the whole point of it. Yeah, and you might even get into a scenario where you put that together and it's a finished product and you say, you know what, that, that scene doesn't work. It doesn't aid what we're the story we're trying to tell here and you cut that out and maybe otherwise you wouldn't have known 
until yeah, you actually spent all the money on production to shoot it and then you get into the exactly. cutting room and then you cut it out and you, you had an interesting point earlier where you said you know that you know it really helps the studio make a decision and, and in some cases the decision is we're not even going to make the movie like like it, it mm. can go that far so i mean it, as bad as it sounds i've worked on projects where you know we spent a year working on previs and ultimately it it like you watch the movie and you go like well that doesn't look like a good thing we should invest 150 million dollars into or whatever you know sure. like, so so it, it can be used for that as well which is which is this gamble you're always playing mm-hmm. with the creatives, right? You, you know, they don't know better than having spent the 150 million though. <laughs> it is, but out. for the director working on it, it's not so fun, right? Like yeah. they, they didn't get a chance to make the movie. So, so there's this balance and that's where, you know, guys like myself come in and, and like, you know, sort of help ease uh, the, the, the tensions between the creative forces that just want to get their picture made and the, the studio forces that are, you know, they're saying, well, is this a good investment or not? Yeah, so you must be brought in pretty early then. How exactly, like, I assume there's companies that this is what they do. They specialize in creating this kind of... Yeah, Third Floor, Halon, Proof, Envis, if you're in in the UK. There's a lot of independent companies that do it. Most of the visual effects companies, your frame stores, your MPCs, Weta, they they have previs departments as well. And previs is also heavily used in, like, animation. Even even at Disney Animation, you know, it's sort of a way to quickly block the scene out without getting into, like, final assets. Where you're spending a lot more money to make these things look great. I in, in the video game world we'd call it white boxing or we would call it a vertical slice of a section. You basically okay. want to try it out before you before you you you, you commit to uh, the full resolution versions of these things cuz that makes sense. Um the thing to remember with any of this stuff even in visual effects is like it costs a lot of money to make really good looking assets and really good looking simulations and really good looking. And so this is a way to sort of try that stuff out creatively get buy off before you, you commit the big money and whether that's yeah. a physical spend or, or, a, or a VFX spend, which is why you go from previs many times you actually go out and do the shoot. You know, you mentioned the sort of like mishmash of trying to throw it all together live, which is we call it <laughs> simulcam and, and all of that, which which is, you know, play the previs back live on the set while you're tracking a live action camera. Mm-hmm. But there's also uh, something they call post-vis, which is take the cut material and take the previs elements and quickly track the shots, quickly do a VFX temp cut of what that is to help editorial tell the story using the video game version of the assets. So is that like a scenario or like as an example, there's a green screen behind somebody and you've got your previs asset that has the background in it. Now you essentially in Avid key that green out and then comp in that previs element. Now you've got something we're calling post-vis. Yeah, exactly. It may be a little bit more complex insofar as you actually typically would track the, the camera itself, uh, like a post track on the camera solution. We, we, when we're doing simulcam, do it live, but typically you would do, you know, use a software tracking just like you would do in post and but then put the previs assets and the previs animations into that shot in order to basically double check your work did, yeah. t- did we get the shot is it there and also many times it's cheaper to have a, a cheaper and more effective uh, speed wise to have the little previs team that's typically been on the show from the very beginning as you were saying earlier from you know before there was a script in many cases mm-hmm. uh, put those assets in there because they've got a really good working relationship with the director and, and the sort of layout of what that sequence is uh, is easier to do and quicker to do again. Yeah. With just the editorial team before it gets kicked over to, you know, the VFX team uh, and gets worked on it in mass. I see. And with storyboards typically coming from the art department, are they very involved 
in this process, considering it's kind of an evolution of what the storyboard was? You know, at the low end, no. You know, it's kind of like the storyboard artists do what they do, and then they kick it over to the previous team, and then the previous takes over. I see. But in the best in the best versions of it, yes, the the art department is actually driving the asset design, and is it, you know the this the previs is not done in a vacuum. It's actually done in concert with the art department, mm-hmm. and the art department designs are what are used to create the assets the stories are told within. So basically, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of what you're doing in uh, certainly now when you start calling it virtual production is, uh, which is I, I consider it sort of like not really the next evolution. It's just, it's just allowing the filmmakers to have the tools rather than, you know, the previs artists themselves or the visual effects guys. Right. So in that case, what we're doing is we're going to the art department and we'll have a whole team that's sort of adjacent to the art department. That's taking the concept designs that the art department is putting out and turning those into 3d spaces and sets that ultimately you are going to tell your story within. In the same way I would have it, we call that the VAD or the virtual art department, virtual asset department. And their job is to build a virtualized version of either the live action set that is to come or in many cases, what the set extensions will be. You know, and they'll they'll actually start working on final assets in some cases. I see. And and what are those actually those environments? What are they made in? Because I keep hearing about Unreal being used for this, but I wasn't sure if Maya creates the objects that then get imported into something like Unreal, or are you actually design like creating the mesh in? You're you're like describing Unreal. kind of what's happening right now, right? So in the past, it was typically like Maya, Max, something like that, and then and then the previous company would just render those assets and those scenes within those applications themselves maya max whatever Mm -hmm. what's happened now is the game engines unreal unity but primarily unreal they've been the ones sort of more active in this space in the last little bit anyway and just came out Um, with an update too i I, yeah they constantly they're they're constantly coming out with updates they're (laughs) they're they're amazing i love those guys but what's happening now is actually a lot of the design work itself is starting to happen in Unreal. You don't make the meshes in Unreal, with the exception of landscapes. You don't actually make the meshes there, but what you do is you're, you're, all the texturing and lighting is happening in Unreal. So you, you basically import an object in, you're using a, 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 from Maya or Max or Modo or whatever, something that generates a mesh. You are then uh, sending that to a surfacing tool. I'm talking about rigid bodies. It's a whole other workflow for you know things that move around, but you know skeletons and stuff like that. But uh, you're you're sending it over to a program right now. The one that people like is called Substance. It's a it's a really good surfacing program. I think Adobe bought them. But that surfacing actually, what you're seeing, the material that you're actually seeing is is being done in Unreal now. And the interesting thing there is it really is starting to become the Unreal's kind of becoming this hub where the art department can put things into it. The animation department is putting things into it and it becomes kind of a virtualized working hub. And the guys at Epic have done a really good job of sort of building multiplayer tools and things like that that allow multiple participants to go it's sort of like this vision we in the old days we used a program called motion builder that was like our real-time visualization tool Um, but now epics really stepped into that that space of being the 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 people that are kind of driving uh what you're seeing in terms of the live rendering so when you say you're texturing any of these objects that you've okay you've you've created the object in something like maya or maybe you're even creating the environment in unreal and you're texturing it is are these Photographs, like I've heard the term photogrammetry before. Is that what you mean is being used to texture it? It's actual real life images? 
in, in some instances, in some instances, yes. There's a, a little subset within Epic's empire now called company called Quixel was purchased. They had a product that they had for many years called Megascans, which was basically like a library of plants and trees and rocks and, and environments that you could uh, use. And these were photogrammatic scans that were done and sort of broken down to their molecular components, if you will. Um, they're the smallest parts, the smallest part of lichen, and you and and you could essentially paint trees or paint uh, these photogrammet photogrammetry assets around. And the cool thing is they have a thing called mixer, which you can like take the textures and and mix between various flavors of rock or various flavors of tree in order to get the exact kind of tonal materials that you want. There's this whole hmm. this this is where you start getting into like the video games are starting to look as good as the back end, you know, final VFX assets now. And yeah. so there's this really weird, there's, I'm not going to say clash, but there is this like, oh, well, how much better do we need to make it look before it's considered final? The game engines really can't handle dynamics very well right now. So like simulations, things that are, you know, wind and, and, and rain and, you know, water, and water stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Or, or, you know, cloth. They're not great at finalized versions of that yet, but if you're talking about hard surface rocks, building interiors, you can't tell. They're photoreal now. So would, the, would like the Mandalorian have used something like that then for their backgrounds? Yeah. Yeah, so Mandalorian season one did have uh, they were using Unreal uh, as the rendering engine uh, for the the stagecraft system uh, that was mm -hmm. put into play. Stagecraft is ILM's uh, a name for the LED wall setup that they've put together, and it's a combination of the LED wall, which is basically like a really fancy translite, a moving translite, or an evolution of a front or rear projection gag that you would have done in in, in the past. <laughs> Um, but because it's being driven live from a game engine and you're tracking the position of the camera, the parallax on the objects that are closer to camera is going to be accurate. So it looks like it, you, through the frustrum angle of the actual yeah. lens itself, you're seeing the background adjust in such a way that it looks like you're looking into a window into that world. So you can do a real mm -hmm. set extension from a from a physical set into a virtualized set seamlessly. I feel like... If anyone doesn't know what we're talking about here, you should just go on to YouTube and search for The Mandalorian on set. There's some awesome videos that show that in the sense that, like he was saying, you, you pan the camera. The background that is an LED wall that you can't see beyond, so it just looks like it's the background actually moves when you move the camera. I, I couldn't help but feel like when this whole COVID thing started, when we come out of this, piling people up in these little houses in Toronto or New York and some of these places where you just get people on top of each other in, in these small locations and all just the location issues in general. I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion, but I can't help but feel like this style of workflow with these LED walls and, and using those virtual backgrounds should really blow up because at that point, the object of Jesse's house could be up for rent or something like that. People could rent it as a virtual object and then use it on the stage and you don't have to deal with all the things you have to deal with on location. You don't have to deal with worrying about our people physically distancing from each other, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess technically speaking, you could run it with a, with a much smaller scale staff than would be on a traditional live action set. There's still... Anytime you're dealing with things where people, action, have to interact with things, vehicles, 
uh, running scenes, anything that's not like, you know, my dinner at Andre sitting around a dinner table. Um, you know, there is a, there is things have to be physically constructed in order for the human beings to actually walk on. I, I, when I, when we worked on jungle book, it was a really good example where the character Mowgli, anything that he walked on or touched, we would have a physical branch or a physical piece of ground there or something, even though the background that he was placed within was a fully blue screen. It's the same concept in the LED walls. It's just you're just replacing the blue screens really with the LED wall. You get better light because you can wrap them with light, but you still have all this construction project. Uh, does it mean, though, we need to fly an entire crew to... Um, Tunisia to shoot our giant wide, you know, sandscape? And the answer is no. At that point, you don't have to fly the crew. So there's there's trade-offs um, mm-hmm. between what you can do and can't do. You can certainly, I feel that it's really appropriate for, you know, high concept, um, anything like, like, like Mandalorian. As we get into things that are more like tactile, you know, if we're going to do a, a, a Jason Bourne kind of scene and, you know, in a London square or something like that, I, I don't know that the technology lends itself to to that so much so it's it's sort of like it's it's a tool that that is awesome and and is and it is amazing but it's just one of many tools that we would use depending on on what the script would do and that's that's actually what the previs does for us believe it or not that's really where previs and that front end comes into play in terms of storytelling earlier in the process which is the decision is the deliverable like the decision of what we're going to do on the led screen versus what we're going to do in a downtown square versus what we're going to do um, against traditional blue screen, uh, given all the constraints, is what comes out of that work that happens in previs up front. And so, going back to the previs thing, then um, yeah. when you have to, I guess uh, you know, thinking way before production starts, you're choosing your camera angles, you're choosing how to light mm-hmm. things for things like a location scout. Is that happening virtually? How how does that work? On the shows that I'm on, absolutely. So, so the the process for us is generally the art department does a piece of concept art. It gets sent over to the VAD. The VAD take, which is the virtual art department, takes that and creates our 3D environment in mass beyond where we think the shooting will actually take place because we don't know exactly where the camera is going to be. And at that point, you can bring in the DP. Um, we can bring in some like motion capture troop actors. We can start blocking the scene in effect virtually, whether that's guys with mice on a chair, you know, like traditional sort of animators doing it, or it's taking the DP and handing him a virtual camera that he can sort of look into that world. Or in some cases, you can actually put on the VR goggles and virtualize the entire thing where the entire crew, you know, or the creative crew is within that virtualized environment. And they start deciding, oh, yeah, this angle looks good. That angle looks good. Um, I think we're going to be over here. And then out of that is where you start slicing it up into this is physical, this is virtual. So so wh- where are they physically in that? So the I imagine the virtual camera that you mentioned where they're, they're moving around, they're actually standing on a stage of some type walking around physically holding this this virtual camera. Right? That's, that's what I like to do because it gives okay. them the sense that they're on a live action set. I like to treat all of this beginning work even with the same sort of gravitas and urgency that you that we are on a live action set decisions that are being made now are going to carry through till later that's one version of it the other version of it of course is i just kick it over the fence to the artists at halon or third floor proof and let them show me the results of them sort of 
deciding where the cameras are going to be or what the action is going to be. So every director is going to, and, and every DP and everybody is going to want to do it their own way. Mm-hmm. But what's happened more recently is the tools for like tracking objects in 3D space have become, you know, infinitely cheaper than they used to be, right? We used to take millions of dollars in hardware to do this. And now it's like, I can just go get a Vive and, you know, at my house, pop up a virtual camera in Unreal that's just built in and start walking around the set, you know, the virtual set uh, with just my little Vive controller and start setting angles like I would with a viewfinder. So is that is that actually happening where you get a, a bunch of producers that are all each at their home because they can't get to whatever, well, the, the, I guess location doesn't exist, but they can't get to whatever the stage is that they could yeah. have potentially sat together at? Yeah, that's certainly happening now. I mean, I've, I, I'm on three or four projects now that are like that, where we're, we're sort of virtualizing even the work between artists in the same way that you guys are, you know, working from home every day. You know, it's the same thing if we're into this position where we're starting to do development on these projects. And yeah, it's it's just, uh, you know, I send the, send the Unreal scene over to these guys. We have, you know, ways to deliver that scene out. There's a a tech stack called Perforce. It's sort of like the project that, that is like a repository and we just deliver the repository to everybody and then they open up the the box. They open up the scene at their house and they can start plugging away using the little vibe controllers uh, to start, you know, getting a handle on what the what the environments are like. And they're doing it from home. They, you don't need to you don't need to go anywhere to do it. And that was that's been a big push for me in the last few months is is sort of like how do we take all the stuff that I used to even even in the, the, the small version of a set that we used to bring guys into, you can't do uh, in these current conditions. So what do you do? Well you put it at their house. You you basically take the same tools that we would be using on our on our mocap stage and, and, and deliver them to people's houses. And are, and are multiple people are in and interacting with each other. They can talk to each other. And like, is there? I, I'm used to seeing VFX reviews where people are drawing on the screen and and mm-hmm. communicating through visuals that way. Is there anything like that happening in the scenario? That's a lot of what I'm personally working on right now is trying to make uh, the Unreal, the game engine version of interaction more friendly to note taking and remote capabilities yes we had systems like that when we were at our motion capture stage but being able to deliver them remotely is it's coming online it's not fully like integrated and just turnkey ready to go it's sort of like a science experiment right now uh, but that that's what i see as the future of this is remote collaboration but in in 3d spaces that's kind of what i'm gunning for right now Hmm. that would be awesome yeah it's it's fun it's 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 i mean like look we're doing it now we're on a zoom call or whatever on our on sure. our Microsoft Teams or whatever. I mean, it's the same. It's the same concept, but just now let's just go stand in a, in the the actual virtual set of what we're going to be shooting, and now let's talk about it from context of the storytelling aspect, not just you know looking at pictures. Sure. And for the jobs that just did the previs, they didn't mash all these different things together and pull a whole simulcam workflow together like we were talking about before, and it's just previs. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Once that gets into editorial. How is that often referenced? I guess I guess if they haven't shot something yes yet, it's put in place until they shoot it. So that therefore you're seeing live action, live action, and then previs shot, and then live action, live action, another previs shot. Is that kind of what happens? 
that's exactly what happens um, huh. uh, in, in the context of if you've gone in and you've done sort of a pre-cut in previs of the entire sequence. In some cases, the previs is just an idea generalized. We're going to kind of be ready to shot kind of like this, in, in which case it gets a little muddy. But if you've gone in and sort of done story viz actually actually you know put the the walk and talks in there along with the big action sequences yeah you can literally just have the entire movie on the timeline or section a big section of the movie and then you're just going in on the live action day and sort of replicating what's there or coming up with better i mean that's the cool thing is there's always sure. room for magic but yeah the, the editors have something to, to cut against as they're working and yeah. uh, if you're doing the simulcam thing as you're shooting uh, we would be recording on set the live comp, the, the virtualized background, and in some cases, the virtualized characters that were there, the real-time overlay, the real-time uh, composite that we were doing, that composite would go to editorial so that they're, they're ahead of the game. They don't have to wait six weeks or, or a you know, couple months to get something back from visual effects. It's already there and something that they can cut with. In that scenario, when you have a live, going back to the Warcraft thing, you had mm -hmm. a live camera that was moving around being operated by a human in the moment live. Are those camera moves being captured digitally somehow so that if later you want to reuse it rather than having to track it all over again? Is that happening or is it a starting point maybe? Yeah, well, we're, we are recording it. Typically, the track that we're getting live is good, but it's not perfect. Mm, um, okay. especially when you're talking about a simulcam scenario for the led wall stuff, it's a little bit less important that it'd be a perfect track, but it's more forgiving, I guess it's a slightly different, but, uh, but yeah, the idea is, yes, we are certainly recording, you know, the lens information, we're recording the physical position and rotation of the camera, uh, and we're updating it, you know, uh, at the speed of 24 frames a second, or in many cases the the actual tracking systems running at like 120 frames a second. Mm-hmm. And then all that information can be given to the post-visual effects team to certainly aid their final post-track later. But the nice thing is, is it's good enough in many cases to put the elements into the edit and make those decisions sooner. Did we get the shot? Yes, we got the shot. Great. That's the one. Good. Move on. We know we, know we got it. As opposed to having this like turnaround time and waiting for things, which is something I hate to do and I know every editor in the world hates too, so... Yeah, at least they have a rough idea of how scenes are going to transition together, and they have a rough idea of what's going to be shot on any given day. That's yeah, interesting. It sure is. It's cool. It's cool stuff, man. It's uh, yeah. like for me, like my eventual goal is to have the CG shooting experience be the same as the live action experience. So I want to be able to walk onto a stage or or, or virtualize you know, Zoom call with somebody and call things out on a radio the same way a gaffer would to his team and have objects appear and things happen so that that, that creative spark that happens in the moment, the collaborative uh, environment is very much kept alive. And that feeling of being on a set is always there and prescient um, as opposed to like a more traditional animation pipeline where it's really just yeah. like a storyboard that just kind of evolves and, and keeps getting better. Yeah, because I mean, like you said, on some of those other jobs, like I remember seeing on YouTube where with Avatar, you know, the DP is is walking around and there's still that tactile process involved with that cinematographer in that scenario. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the point is you think differently, right? If I'm yeah. a if I'm a DP, a lot of my brain power. Yes, your brain is consumed by lighting, but it's also consumed about by blocking. Like how am I going to transition from you know, this actor to that actor or this vehicle to that. Like, what is the, not just the shot, but like 
what is the story need in order for me to propel ourselves through that? And they're not used to working, you know, on a mouse <laughs> with a computer to do that, right? And mm -hmm. they're really good at it. So I want I want to give them every tool that they can have in order to enable them to do their jobs in the best way possible. And that, and that's where a lot of this this sort of virtual production, if you want to call it that, that's where it evolved from. I see. And now looking to the future, once we get back to work and or maybe I guess I guess you said you are on a couple jobs already. Is this made you have to change your approach or is it just you're getting more work because of the fact that being virtual is is good in a, a COVID-19 scenario? I happen to be at the part of the process on the shows that I'm on where we're in development. I see. So starting from script or no script. And as you said, like, when do I get brought into a project? I get brought in, in many cases, before there's even a script. We have an idea for something. That's me. That's not a normal. Previs guys are typically brought in a little later into the process, but just I'm, I'm usually involved personally on, on shows from inception point of, you know, this is the thing we're going to make through the script writing process, through the art department getting hired, that whole development phase. And so that really lends itself to this time that we're in COVID right now. That, that hap I happen to be fortunate in that regard. If we were out trying to shoot live action right now or trying to shoot on a set right now, it, that would all be shut down. And, and friends of mine who, who do this uh, as well or, or, you know, are kind of similar to on the pecking order to where I am, uh, their shows have been shut down. So it's, it's all about where you're at. And in, in my case, I, I happen to be in development right now. So, so this virtual is actually not impacted things that much for me. I see. Awesome. Well, is there anything else you think we should touch on? I think we covered quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it's a broad world and virtual production means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And I think there is a, a little bit of a, you know, push to call any visual effect now virtual production because it's the buzzword du jour. Mm -hmm. um, but I kind of think of it where the line that's drawn in the sand for me is like, are you doing it live or is it being done in post? That that that's the differential. Basically, is it production or is it post? That's that's my defining line on what what would be labeled as virtual production. So when you're seeing like just a bunch of shots that you know saying oh virtual production, but it's really all the cameras being done, tracked in post, it's just a green screen and everything's being put in later. That to me would just be a traditional visual effect yeah. and, and are amazing and, and awesome work and all that stuff. But it's it's not the the, li the live interaction between the elements that you're seeing and the creatives that are doing the work is what to me makes uh, you know a virtual production, uh, whether that be in previs or you know on the set production. But it's an interesting time, man. I mean, I, I think that Favreau's team who are freaking amazing has done a, a great job you know the work that they've done on the mandalorian the, the behind the scenes work there so anybody who's interested in this stuff definitely check that out it, it's brilliant uh, john is a true believer and, and is an amazing guy yeah there's a great on um, disney plus they actually created a mini series on a lot of the technical back end of how that was done which is cool yeah so i'd, I'd suggest uh, checking that out you know other than that uh Epic's done a really good job of sort of like putting out white papers and things like that if you guys are interested in, on reading up on any of it. And, uh, you know, feel free to fire me an email if you got questions. Happy, happy to answer. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Glenn. Knowledge and wisdom is greatly appreciated. And thank you everyone else for joining us. Your support is very much appreciated. And if anyone happens to be working on a job that you think is doing something innovative or different, or something simply worth sharing, by all means, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I always love to hear it and consider it for future episodes. Stay tuned for the reveal of what our next episode will be, along with who my next guest will be on social media. 
And until next time, that's a wrap. Thank you.